more than a song, more than words and sound, that expresses the depth of what we know about God and His saving grace. I've been thinking all day today and tried to help communicate that to our people uh, throughout the services that our view of God needs to be huge. It needs to be grand. It needs to be truly awesome that uh, when we have the right view of God and its grandeur, then we think differently and we live differently. I'd say for the majority of Christians in the Western church, we have too small a view of God. We need to think big of God, to know who He is, and it ought to be evident in our songs and in the way we hold the Word and the way we respond to it. We ought to have a big understanding of Scripture as well, and it's, it's huge, vast form. When you have a big view of God and you have a big view of the Word of God, then a life is transformed in that. Uh, Judah and the rest of the tribes of Israel and Judges 1 are going to have a big view of God, but not big enough. And they're going to see things in their life that are going to cause them to doubt whether God is capable of accomplishing And so these passages, like what we're going to study today, help us because it helps us realign our thinking appropriately about God and His Word. So I'm encouraged by it. I want to tell you only up front, I think it ought to make a difference in who we are. The end of the, uh, say it's 12, 15, and you're walking out, uh, that you and I will be different because we've come in, in alignment with the bigness of God and His Word. So I'm, I'm looking forward to what God would do. Now, that's not going to happen by my teaching. That will only happen by the Spirit of God's teaching. So let's ask Him to teach us in these next few moments. Please, Lord, I pray that Your Word would be on the forefront and that Your voice would be heard more loudly than mine. And I pray that if I say anything contrary to You or Your Word, that you would stop my mouth. I want to honor you and your word today. Lord, we need a fresh view of your grandeur. We need a fresh understanding of your truth today. But more than understanding and knowledge, God, we need a life of repentance. So I pray that your grace would flood us today that we might respond appropriately in faith for the glory of Jesus and that the nations may know him. I pray, amen. Judges chapter 1, in the handout, you'll find uh, some confusion today. Uh, Being the third service, we can kind of correct things as we're going along. I don't know how it happened, but you have page 1, and then you have page 3, and you have page 3. But now our Cracker Jack staff has figured that out and has slid into your handout today a page two. So it's going to be kind of out of whack a little bit, but you'll figure it out as you go. Uh, Hopefully it'll help you as you're studying God's Word today. Uh, The Bible helps us to have a high view of God and His holiness and have a high view of the Word of God. How we view God and His Word is evident in our worship and in our daily lives. The book of Judges is going to help us to have that right kind of view. Now, you'll notice as we were finishing Joshua, the conquest was beginning about taking the promised land. Judges continues that. Be careful not to think less of Judges because of the name. Uh, 
don't dumb down the book. It's meant to communicate the greatness of God and how God leads his people uh, through imperfect people uh, like judges throughout the scripture. There's going to be some amazing stories we're going to be confronting throughout the book. And today's is one of those as well as it helps sets the pace for us for the rest of the the book of Judges. If you're new to Meadowbrook, we're in the very first chapter of Judges and you're sticking it out till the end of Judges, which will take us a few weeks to do so. I hope you'll stick with us as we uh, discover God's truth. Look at Judges chapter 1. Uh, the scripture is not going to be on your handout because I want you to read it in your Bible. Judges chapter 1, the first couple of verses. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So now the conquest is beginning, or continuing, I should say. And upon hearing the instruction of the Lord that Judah would be the first tribe to go forth and take the captivity of the land, he actually goes to a brother tribe, Simeon, and he says to him, why don't you go with me and we will conquer the land that God has allotted to me and given to me, given me the victory, and then in turn, I'll do the same for you. Now, depending on what commentary you read, that could go in a couple of different directions. I don't really think it matters. One commentator would say, well, you know, Judah should have obeyed clearly the word of God. God said he was the first to go and that he should have appropriated that word by faith and gone and done it. Others would say, well, it's good that brothers get together and do the kingdom of God's work together. So Judah aligning with Simeon, both for the same purposes, is good. Like the church, moving together to accomplish a greater amount of kingdom work. I don't know which way you want to lean. It doesn't matter to me. The scripture doesn't make that clear. Maybe he will in the future. Here's the fact. God said, the victory is yours. Go get it. That's what I need to know. And Judah needed to step forward, and they do. In fact, they begin to quickly mobilize in that region that was allotted to them, and God gave them instantaneous victory over the Canaanites and the Perizzites. In fact, Judah and Simeon go up against them, and 10,000 of the enemies are slaughtered. That's a pretty big victory. And they have control over the region now. So when, when Judah is caught up in this great victory, he moves them all throughout the hill country, and he captures that. One of the kings that he captured in that area is named Adonabezek. And he is actually captured, but somehow escapes from the hands of, of the Israelites. And when they capture him again, they take his thumbs and cut them off. And his big toes are removed as well. Now, the king comes to the forefront. And he says, you know, I now have lost my thumbs and my toes. Such as it was for 60 kings who I cut off their thumbs and their toes and they ate scraps from underneath my table. In other words, like what I did to them, it's now done to me. What's going on in this passage is pretty intriguing to me. Here the men of Judah are fighting, they're capturing, they're taking over kings, they're, they're doing with them what was their due justice and now they're going into Jerusalem, the, the chapter goes on to say, and they capture the, the uh, Jerusalem city, they take it by sword, they burn it with fire, and, and now here they are in complete uh, victory with the enemy being submissive to them. Great victories are described all the way through the chapter to chapter 1 verse 19. But now look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
Now, the reason why that's a big verse for me is because there's a transition happening here that is going to go throughout the rest of the tribes. In fact, all the tribes that are described for us in chapter 1 are going to have this pattern established where they go in and they have immediate victory and then they see something they think, I don't know that we can do that. They back up and they give in to the enemy. Judah allows the Canaanites to live in the plains, in the valley areas. And he does so because he sees the chariots that can be mobilized in the valley areas, not obviously in the mountainous areas. He sees those iron chariots and he says, oh, we can't overcome that. Now this was not to be about Judah. This was to be about God from the beginning. Remember what God said? I have victory and I'm giving it to Judah. Now Judah, go get it. This is what God has for all of us. God tells us His Word. We have a big view of God, a big powerful view of God. We have a great view of God's Word. We read it. We know He can accomplish it. And He says to us, now you appropriate that by faith. You walk in it. Now the problem with Judah is he fails to do that. He sees what's going on before him and he thinks not just that he can't do it, but that God can't accomplish it. But now think with me for a moment about how God has helped set their vision about how big he actually is. It was those people who saw the mightiness of God who brought decimating plagues throughout Egypt so that the mightiest king in all the world, the Pharaoh, would be brought to nothingness. It was God who allowed his man to stand before the waters of the Red Sea and the power of God moved those waters back so that his people could walk on dry ground. And in case they didn't catch it that time, the next generation saw the same thing as they crossed the Jordan River. This is the way God is helping them to see how big he is and how his word holds true. When God says it, it is going to come about. But now, now Judah is saying, I'm not sure this can be accomplished. Now, what Judah has done is what you and I often do. Judah has replaced God and his greatness and his word with himself. Now, all of a sudden, Judah sees the battle as his, not God's. Judah sees iron chariots, and he says, I can never overcome that. What Judah has done is he has moved to sight rather than to faith. God wants us to recognize his greatness, his grandeur, his word. It's always true so that when we hear his promise, we just mobilize and appropriate that faith And bring it about to his glory. Now, verse 19 is the twist of that. It's Judah not following through in faith. Now, that's going to go on through Benjamin and Manasseh and Ephraim and and Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali and Dan. All of them are going to have that same thing. They're going to go in and have victory, but then they're going to back up and they're going to um, compromise. You see that throughout the passage. Like in verse 21, but it's a People of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now, I'm not going to go through the rest of those scriptures because we're going to uh, want to take time in other places. But every tribe does this. They take captive and then they give part of the land back. They have victory in some places against Gezer, but then they choose to live among the Canaanites there because they can't get rid of them. Over and over and over you see that to be the case. Twenty times in chapter 1 alone, he tells us that they did not 
drive out the people. That is going to be a deadly mistake for them. Now, I want us to take some time throughout this passage to lift some life lessons for us. It's always amazing to me. The living Word of God, this section, what, 35, uh, 30, eh, 30 centuries ago or so, still is very much alive for us today. I want to take some of those things and lift them up. So before we do, though, I want to just draw a conclusion with you about something because you can be misguided, and I can be misguided on this pretty easily. We can think... Why would God require the Israelites to come through and totally destroy the people living there? Why would He not? Why would God not be okay with some of the Canaanites living there, or some of the Perizzites living there, or the Amorites? Why does He have to destroy them all? We can get this notion that they're victims against these angry Israelites. I want you to know from the basis of the Bible, they are no victims. That God is executing His judgment against them. He has been merciful to them for four centuries long. 400 plus years, God has been giving them opportunity after opportunity to come to Him. And they rejected that over and over again. And now God's mercy has mounted and mounted and mounted till it's done and exhausted. And He is going to execute judgment. Now in the Western church today, people don't like that part of God. In fact, they say, oh, that's the God of the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. Oh, no, the way it is is the Older Testament of Christ is just as valid as the Newer Testament of Christ. It's all God's Word. You need to understand who God is. And what these passages are helping us to do is to see how big God is and how certain He is with His Word. That's going to come about here in this passage very vividly as we read the, the narrative. What we, what we need to do is recognize they are no victims at all, but yet God has said their wickedness has come up against me. And this is God's word, another word that's not like to be used today. It's an abomination to me. He says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's what they are. They're an abomination to me. They're wicked people. They burn their children to sacrifice to their false gods. They practice divination, he says in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 18. They practice divination. They, they tell fortunes. They interpret omens. They practice sorcery. They hold seances with the dead. And on and on and on it goes. In Leviticus 18, he says that they're so sexually de- depraved that they actually practice openly incest. Mothers and sons and fathers and daughters and brothers and sisters. It is filth before God. And God says, all that is mounted for 400 plus years, now I execute my judgment. And he chooses Israel to be his hand to do it. Now don't think that Israel alone is the hand of God for discipline. The tables are going to be turned. Sometime later when Israel rejects God and His ways and they prostitute themselves out spiritually, God uses pagan wicked nations to come against Israel as His hand of discipline and judgment. It's just the practice of God to do that. He'll do it in the 21st century as well. Moses helps the people to understand as they were about to go in to take the land to have the right view of what's happening. Watch the screens. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Moses says to them, Do not say in your heart, After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of your heart are you going to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of, those, of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that 
he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses is on the outright, hey guys, when you go in and you start taking possession of the land, don't you get haughty. Don't you think this is about you and your righteousness and your upright living? It's not. It's about the wickedness of the people that are there. And God is going to dispossess them because of that wickedness. Now, don't think of them as victims. We live in a bizarre, paradoxical culture. One of those paradoxes is that we embrace violence. We crave violence. Our sporting events, we love them the more when they're violent. I could have no interest whatsoever in hockey if it weren't for the fights. You with me? We have a sense about us that craves, it's a sinful flesh, craving violence. Our movies are flooded with violence. A good book has a great plot line, but out of it comes violence. TV shows rank high and blockbuster movies come through violence. But yet at the same time, we love to embrace the victim of violence. It's weird, isn't it? You can have a passage like this and probably... The first thing that you heard me say was that a king had his thumbs and toes cut off. That's because we embrace violence, but at the same time, you could say, I wonder why God has to have all of them killed. Be careful not to let this culture dictate how we view things in Scripture. Be careful about that. All right, all of that to get to the heart of the message. And the heart of the message is to take the narrative and say, okay, God, so what about me? I think throughout the scripture, that is the way we ought to read it. I read that passage in 1 Judges. It's filled with names and geography. And we ought to say to the Holy Spirit, so what? What am I supposed to, to understand? What can I know about God? What can I know about his word? How can I come in alignment with him? Help me to do that. I want to take some of those and just illuminate them today. The first is this, that great opportunity often follows great loss. See it in the first verse here where he talks about uh, the death of Joshua. In fact, if you're careful to read, you'll find that there is a rhythm in these books of the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, that helps us to see that. For instance, Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. And then Joshua begins with the death of Moses. And Judges begins with the death of, jo- of, of Joshua. And 1 Kings is going to begin with the death of David. Every one of them begins, first and second chapter, with the death of the great leader. But then the rest of the book is filled with great opportunity. So yes, it's a big deal that Joshua is dead. But right out of the mouth of the writer comes this statement that Joshua has died. But the next breath is... The people asking God, who is it that you want to go first to conquer the land? Now, the reason why that's important to me is Joshua is a great leader. I mean, he's called of God. He has been gifted uniquely by God. In fact, God gave him special favor among the people. Among all the leaders in the Bible, Joshua would rank way up there. So the fact that he is dead is a big deal. I don't mean this to sound harsh, but it's not a big deal to the sovereign God who has plans and purposes for Israel. Those plans and purposes are going to continue. So what I want you to see is God is sovereign. God's plans and God's purposes are right. 
And a mere mortal will never stand in the way of God's great plan. So yeah, you could have amazing leaders like Moses and Joshua or David, and they could die out, but immediately God raises up somebody else. And this is the beginning of that. He's going to raise up a group of judges to lead the people to the purpose and the plans of God. Now, the people are going to be rebellious to that, but that's God's movement. So what about in your life? What kind of loss have you suffered? Hey, as a church, we've suffered loss throughout the, the time the church has been in inception. I mean, what are we, 55 years or so old? And throughout that period of history, we have had great leaders to come and serve you. And yet those leaders have come and gone. And God always lets his sovereign purpose and plans continue. I might pull out at the end of this service and try to turn left or right on Rainbow Drive, not see somebody coming, and wham, T-bone me right there and be gone in a flash. I want you to cry for a day or two, and then I want, to, I want you to get on with the sovereign plans and purposes of God, which is to make the name of Jesus known among the nations and to disciple people in the teachings of Christ. Okay, shed a, two, shed a tear or two, but then move on with your life because God is not rattled in that movement about me dying. He's not. This is not about me. This is about him. And he will just as quickly bring somebody in to take over. Some of you have had significant loss in your life. A loss of a real loved one. And it has shaken you to the core. But it hasn't changed at all the sovereignty of God, nor His plan or purpose for your life. And although you are rattled, listen, God is not. And His purpose for you is not changed. Now, it might be brought about differently without your loved one, but God expects you to have a greater view of Him than to wallow around without purpose and vision. Move forward in what God has for you. Now, let's get it down to a real personal level for all of us, as if my death or the loss of a loved one is not personal enough. What about the loss of a job? Oftentimes, the loss of a job brings greater opportunity for the kingdom with the next step. But what about the loss of a relationship? Maybe God's in the midst of that lost relationship because something else, another opportunity is greater for influence down the road. What is it in this loss in life that you're experiencing? Maybe even loss, possession, or revenue. What is it that is the loss that you've been seeing as a devastation and God has been wanting you to see in the grandeur of Him as a grand opportunity? What is that? The writer helps us to understand we've got to have right vision on that. Joshua is dead. It's a real tragic news for the people. But God, who should go first to conquer the land? That's the right view. Now look at the next thing that I think is important here. That the faithfulness of your heart will prove more important than a strategy of your mind when advancing the plan and the purpose of God. Now I try to keep points more concise than that one, but I couldn't whittle that one down to be honest with you. I want to repeat that one because this is a big deal for me. The faithfulness of our heart will prove more important than, the, than a strategy of our mind when advancing the plan and purpose of God. Now Judah helps us to see that because Judah has a heart that seems immediately given in faith to God. He immediately moves and he begins to go into that allotted land to him and his tribe or to his tribe and he begins to take that area. 
And they have immediate success. 10,000 soldiers are killed, the, the enemy. Immediate success. But then he gets off the hill country and gets into the plains where chariots can actually move around. And now he sees things, things radically different. <laughs> Get my tongue wrapped around my teeth sometimes. Now he's seeing things radically different. He's not seeing the grandeur of God. He's seeing the greatness of chariots. Now he's not seeing the big focus of who God is and the power of God's word to be brought about in truth. Now he says, how in the world will I ever overcome all those chariots? And his heart of faith is reduced and the strategy of his mind is elevated. And that thing's turned upside down. Now this is not a belittling of strategy. We ought to have strategy. But strategy always ought to be trumped by faith. Faith is, God, I believe you, I believe your greatness, I believe your power, I believe your word. And so I'm going to strategically plan for your purpose and your will to be accomplished. Now, when you get your eyes off of him and his word, his command, and you start putting it on strategy, you're in the wrong direction. When we do that as a church, we're in the wrong way. I'll tell you how that comes about in a church. Here's what I believe you want for us as a church, God, but wow, look at all this lack of resource. Now, we're going to have to strategically do something about that. We're going to plan accordingly to the resources we have. You see what I've done? I put us as the focus rather than the God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Or I don't know that we can have global impact. Why, my goodness, the world is seven billion people strong. How would we ever have global impact? 